just, just to be clear, and Lloyd was giving that announcement, said that we have a million, that was with an M. I know it sounded like a billion. I know that because Christy was, Christy Haas was sitting behind me, so he said, billion? No, not billion, million. So we're one million down, two million to go. And that's with just over 100 giving units, by the way. And so if you've not made uh, your commitment to join us and, and seeing this finished, then we would encourage uh, you to participate with us. Uh, I told you a little of this story recently. My family and I were in Colorado Springs where I was serving as an associate pastor. I was ready to pursue uh, becoming a senior pastor and wanted to relocate to North or South Carolina to be actually to be closer to my, my parents. Uh, we put out some, some feelers and, and soon heard about a church in Boone, North Carolina. I didn't know where that was. So I submitted my resume in early 97 and did not hear anything for almost a couple of months. I thought I was out of the running until one day the phone rang and my wife Tana said, it's some guy named Paul Branch in Boone. I, I spoke with Paul then on the phone late April. The rest happened rather quickly. We were here by um, August moving in with the rest of the students. That was fun. We had, uh, we had come from a similar church, so we knew Alliance had an elder style of church leadership, which was good since I find that to be most biblical. As I started getting to know the elders, I soon found out which ones carried the most weight. Now, now you understand that while elders are equal in authority, there is no hierarchy uh, on the elder board. It's not like as a senior pastor that I uh, have more power or vote than anyone else. It is true that certain elders can carry more influence than others. Now, unfortunately, in some churches, it really doesn't matter your church polity, that influence comes as a result of those, you know, like who give the most money or who, who has the loudest voice or who has controlled the church with his family the longest, whatever. Fortunately, that is not the case here. And yet there were those elders um, who, by virtue of their faithful service, godly wisdom and humble leadership, had ro rose to the top. In my early days, the, the, there were three pastors on staff, and we affectionately and respectfully, affectionately and respectfully, respectfully behind their backs, referred to them as the big three. David had his mighty men, we had the big three. Paul Branch, Max Dowell, and Randy Edwards. Now, to be sure, there are others who had served uh, who were just as influential, uh, but, but they were not on the board at that particular time. The big three. Uh, and I found none to carry more weight, and rightfully so, than that first voice that I heard, um, Paul Branch. Now, he, he carried that unassuming influence with great humility, patience, and wisdom. So you can imagine oh, uh, just a few months later, and not even quite a year later, as it came time for elder selections, when Paul said to me, maybe it's time I take a break, I, I panicked. Uh, you see, he had at that time been serving for 16 uninterrupted years, 16 as an elder. Now, it wasn't that he wanted off the board. He was just willing to make room for others to serve. I begged him, as I recall, on my knees, Paul, I am too new. I, I need you to serve. Will you stay on for another two-year term? He agreed to do so. And the term after that, and 
I turned after that, and that was over 17 years ago, and Paul Branch has faithfully served as an elder in this church uninterrupted for 33 years. I want, you to know, I want you to know that I say in all humility, he is the true senior pastor of Alliance Bible Fellowship. Earlier this week, our denominational district superintendent met with our elders. It was the first time that he'd met with all of us as a group, and so each elder introduced themselves and shared how long that they had been at Alliance and how long they had sh- uh, uh, served as an elder. As is always the case when we go through that little exercise, I was overwhelmed by the long commitment of these men to this church. Many of those men actually predate me. That is, they, they came to Alliance before I did, and I've been here a long time. We have 14 elders. We meet three times a month, a month the first three Wednesdays after Wednesday night activities. Three times a month at least. I say at least because you see we were here yesterday. Be- beautiful day out. I know we were here. Half the day. We had one agenda item. How can we shepherd? This was it. This was our discussion yesterday. Over four hours. How can we shepherd the people more effectively at Alliance? We actually were assigned a book to read in preparation for the meeting. We're going to be sharing some of the details as they unfold a little bit later. The point is... The elders of this church want to shepherd better, to see us all equipped to serve, to see us all actively and intentionally engaged in fulfilling uh, the the mission. Now, why do I share those two little stories with you? Because our first verse this morning as we jump back into 1 Timothy reads, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. While our elders are not perfect, they oversee, that's what the word rule, by the way, means, they manage, they direct the affairs of the church well, and therefore are worthy of double honor. We'll talk about what double honor means in just a moment. So, we are back in 1 Timothy today. It's been a few weeks, actually since January, so let me remind you of the purpose of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his emissary, his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul and and Timothy had traveled through Ephesus to visit uh, the the church there. The church at this time was about 10 years old, and and they found it when they arrived that it was consumed with false teaching. These false teachers had strayed from the gospel. They were focused on things like myths and genealogies and and fruitless discussions, and they were teaching a law-driven system. They They were advocating an asceticism, that is, this this kind of harsh denial or treatment of the body. You got to do that, they said, to attain spirituality. So no marriage, no certain foods, likely meat, and and no wine. Now, there's nothing wrong with singleness. There's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. Not sure why. Nothing wrong with being a teetotaler. But they were making it necessary in order to be godly. And they had shipwrecked the faith. They had actually found a special hearing, we saw this, from some women, namely some young widows, and, and, and we're going to find in chapter 6 that they were only actually in it for the money anyway. And not only that, these false teachers were coming from among um, the elders. So Paul immediately removed them through this thing called church discipline, and we don't see that much anymore, and, and left Timothy in Ephesus to continue setting things in order. 
And then, and then Paul then writes this letter to encourage him in this most difficult task. So he addresses the issues of false teaching in chapters 1 and 4 and 6. and chapters 2 and 3, he talked about proper worship in, in the church family. And, and since Timothy was going to have to replace some of these false teachers, these elders, so maybe some deacons, he, he talks about their qualifications in, in chapter 3. And, and since they, they had found a, this special hearing among uh, willing women, he talks about the proper care of widows in chapter 5. And all of that then brings us to our text this morning. He turns his attention back to these elders, the proper care of godly elders, how to honor them, how to discipline them when they step out of line, and, and how to appoint them. Let's look at the text, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17, the end of the chapter, say this. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, those who continue in sin will rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and His chosen angels to, to maintain these principles without bias. Do nothing in a spirit of partiality. And do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sins. Timothy, no, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The, the sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment, but others, well, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those who are otherwise cannot be concealed. Yeah, now, it's going to be helpful for us to remember that this whole section deals with, deals with elders. In fact, we often, I think, go to this passage and rip verses out of the context. We've got to remember he's talking about elders. And the outline actually looks like this. Again, we talked about it. We're going to talk about the discipline of elders, uh, excuse me, the honor of elders, the discipline of elders, and, and then the appointment or the ordination or the selection of, of elders. Now, as we go through this, I want to make it intensely practical for us as a church. Yeah, as I said earlier, we do have elders, and they are charged with the oversight of the church family. So let's talk about how this passage applies to us. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, I'm not an elder. No, he's not talking to elders. He's talking to us about how we deal with our elders, starting with honor elders in verses 18 and 19. Now remember, Paul and, and Timothy, they're having to deal with some bad apples, there were some bad elders, and that could have brought the whole office into disrepute. I mean, the people in Ephesus could, could have understandably been done with the whole thing, disrespecting their leaders. Let's get rid of all of them. And maybe that's been your challenge. Maybe you've come from a church where a pastor or pastors or elders were overbearing. They were unethical and immoral. Maybe they were anything but the servant leaders, loving shepherds that God called them to be. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've been affected by an elder or elders at, at this church. Maybe you've not felt cared for or shepherded or, or equipped. We, we understand that. That is why we are working on it. But I, I, want, I want to draw us to the context. We find ourselves at a passage that talks about the flock's care 
of their shepherds. We're talking about how sheep honor their elders. Now, Paul, perhaps wanting to rescue this almost ruined office, says, now listen, those elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, remember, we remember the words elder and overseer and, and shepherd or pastor are used interchangeably in the New Testament. They're all referring to the same thing. So an elder is an overseer, is a, a pastor. And the word, he says, those who rule well, he used that word rule back in the qualifications of elders in chapter 3. There he said he must be one who manages his own household well. That's the word manages, directs his own household well. If a man does not know how to manage, there it is again, rule, direct his household, how will he take care of, don't miss that, take care of the church of God? And so we see this duty of elders is to, is to manage, to, to, to oversee not in a dictatorial way, but in a loving shepherd way, elders are supposed to take care of the flock. It's our responsibility. And in as much as we do that, not perfectly, but in as much as we do that well, then those elders are worthy of double honor. Now, now what does that mean? He actually used that word, honor. Uh, earlier when he was talking about the care of widows. Remember in chapter, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, verse 3, he said, honor widows who are widows indeed. Okay, so respect them, certainly includes that. But then he went on to talk about physically caring for them. So very simply, to, to honor, double honor means, I think, two things. It means to respect and to remunerate. Now, I can't say that word, so I'm going to say to respect and pay. We know it means pay because in the next verse, he quotes both Moses and Jesus for support. For, as proof of what I'm telling you to do, the Scripture says, and then he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 25, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. You see, the law back then had said when an ox is kind of going around and around and trampling the, the grain or, or maybe pulling a sled behind him to separate the wheat from the uh, the grain from the chaff, don't muzzle him. Let him eat while he's working. Well, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 here, and also, by the way, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which gives us a little bit more understanding of what he's saying. Let's look at that. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? It's not just my, I didn't just come up with this, did I? No, look, the law also says these things. What is written in the law of Moses? And then he quotes it. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? That's not the point. Is he he's speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, let the ox eat. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and, and the thresher to thresh in the sharing of the crops. If we sowed, this is, he applies it, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much um, if we reap material things from you? So also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. So those elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, and he applies it at least meaning pay. The second quote is actually a quote of Jesus from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus is getting ready to send out the 70. Uh, he says to them, if you, as you go from city to city, if they welcome you into your, their house, you, you stay. If, if, they, if they give you food and drink, then, then partake. 
For, he says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Jesus sets down the same principle. Okay, so we got to hold this in balance, right? Because back in the qualifications, we have an elder cannot be one who is, um, I mean, he needs to be one who is free from the love of money. That doesn't mean that you don't pay them. There's a difference between accepting a paycheck and having a love of money. So the pay then should be um, appropriate, not overpay. I'm going to send this sermon to a few pastors I have in mind. Not overpay as a result of a love of money. So you live in your multi-million dollar house? No. Um, but nor should it go to the other extreme. There's a saying, an old saying that goes like this, Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. Not, not, not quite right. So, double honor certainly includes pay. Some suggest it even means double pay. I don't think so. I think it means double or two-fold um, honor. That is not just pay, but also respect. Respect your elders. First Thessalonians 5 says it this way. We request of you, brothers, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction so that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so we honor our elders by respecting them as well. A number of ways to respect them. Certainly that includes holding them in high regard because of the work they do. We speak well and warmly of them. In other words, we don't, we don't badmouth our elders, our pastors, even though that's an in thing to do. We don't diminish or demean them. In fact, Hebrews 13 takes a bit further when he says, obey them. It's one way to respect. Verse 17 says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief. Elders are going to give an account of their oversight. We talked about this yesterday. Oversight, give an account for their oversight and shepherding of you. Let them do this with joy by obeying and submitting to their authority. Paul goes on to say, Elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, to work hard speaks of strenuous labor. Okay, and I know, I know it's kind of a joke. You know, I'm a pastor, right? It's like when Dr. Dagger, who's a surgeon, I wonder how many times has he heard, have you ever stopped to think that you're a surgeon and your name is Dr. Dagger? <laughs> I wonder how many times. It's kind of like the number of times I've heard, well, you guys only work an hour a week anyway. Right? Um, those who work hard. I want, you to un, I want you to understand that it is hard work. I want you to know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, I, I just want you to understand that I work hard. I work six days a week, I always have. Um, and I start reading on Wednesday. R Thursday is reading day in between appointments. And Friday and Saturday I'm here writing. And Sunday I'm feeding the flock. start again on Tuesday because everybody knows Sundays come every three days. It's, it's hard work. Now, this verse has led many to suggest that there are two classes of elders, those who rule well and those who teach. For example, the Presbyterian Church has what they call ruling elders and teaching elders. We do understand that there is a qualification of elders back in chapter 3 that says they are able to teach, but 
that teaching can take on a number of different forms, one-on-one, one-on-a-few. It doesn't necessarily refer to preaching and teaching that this verse is talking about. Preaching is the proclamation of the gospel and the word of God. Teaching is the transmission of doctrinal truth associated with the gospel. And, and, and again, hard work. So through the years, historically, the church has come to pay those elders or pastors whose primary job is to preach and teach. Example is in Acts chapter 6, when they appointed the first deacons, do that so that we, they were apostles, leaders at the time, can devote ourselves to the Word of God in prayer. So the practice of the church, in fact, the practice of our church is to pay those elders, frankly, um, like me, who give themselves to the task of preaching and teaching. Now, whether or not there are two classes here, the point is, it is okay, it is even biblical to pay pastors. What, What... What has happened through the course of time is that we started calling elders who preach pastors and elders who don't elders, okay? But you do understand scripturally, biblically speaking, pastors are elders, elders are pastors, elders are elders, pastors. We're all the same. And I want you to know, and listen to me right now, you checked out, check in, um, I am deeply thankful and deeply humbled by your care for me and paying me. I want you to know that. There is seldom, I say this in all truthfulness, not making this up, there is not, there's hardly a week that goes by that I'm not humbled by the fact that I get to do this for a living. It's, it's unbelievable to me. And I'm very, very thankful and you honor me uh, by allowing me to do this. This is also, by the way, uh, this passage shows that it is the elder's responsibility primarily to do the preaching and teaching. It's popular today. Listen, listen. I know that it's really popular today to say, as we're trying to recover the priesthood of all believers and the ministry of all believers, that we don't really need pastors who do all of the teaching. Tired of listening to you anyway. Uh, We should allow others who have the gift of teaching to be able, they should be allowed to preach and teach and And while those who have the gift of teaching should be allowed to exercise their gift, I agree that it does not, listen to me very carefully, it does not eliminate the need for elders to preach and teach and to find themselves paid in doing so. So, that's awkward to talk about the paid preaching pastor. So let's move on (laughs) to our second point. The discipline of elders. Now, remember, there were elders in Ephesus who needed discipline, and Paul had done so and left Timothy to set things in order, which may require having to deal with elders who were out of line. You may have to deal with elders in a disciplinary way. So Paul gives some instructions about that. In verses 19 to 21, he gives the proper way to deal with both the accusation against an elder and the discipline of an elder if those accusations are true. We're talking about two different things. So first, let's look at accusations against an elder. Quite interesting. Paul says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And you say, are you kidding me? That sounds a bit like cronyism. No, it isn't. It's no different than what Moses and Jesus both said. Deuteronomy 19 and Matthew 18. In fact, in the church discipline passage of Matthew 18, Jesus said, if your brother is overtaken in fault, go to him privately. If he listens to you, great. You want him over. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or three witnesses with you. Same thing here. An accusation is brought against an elder. It's brought to leadership. 
brought here to Timothy. Don't receive it, Paul says, if it is a single accuser. Now, why would Paul highlight that point? Because, listen, elders and pastors have always been open to scandalous, malicious, and slanderous accusations by disgruntled and irritable sheep. Always. I have a few emails that I've kept through the years. Just to keep me humble, I'd let you read them, but they're awful. Worst one I ever received was when we did the first building campaign, and shortly thereafter, received a long email accusing me of being unethical, being a liar, and misleading the sheep. Unfounded accusations can ruin the reputation of a pastor and discredit his ministry. Paul says, do not let that happen. Do not perpetuate a gossip mill. The gospel is at stake. John Calvin said it this way. None are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. Even when they do all their duties correctly, we don't. And commit not even the smallest error, we do. They never avoid a thousand criticisms. We do. It is indeed a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as to gradually bring their teaching into contempt. In this way, not only is wrong done to innocent people whose reputation is undeservedly injured, but the authority of God's holy teaching is diminished. I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you not to allow an elder's reputation testimony and work be ruined by slander. But, verses 20 and 21, if the accusation is true, substantiated by witnesses, you confront him if he continues in sin. You rebuke him in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. Lots of discussion about who the all and the rest are. Some say you rebuke him in the presence of the elders so the elders will be fearful. Some say, I think this is more right. Matthew 18 says you tell it to the church. You rebuke him in the presence of the church so that the elders and the church will be fearful of sinning. You see, we take this thing called church discipline very seriously. We had to do that last fall. It was brought to our attention that a former pastor in our church had continued to sin. The point I want you to catch is this. Churches have largely ignored or abandoned the responsibility of church discipline. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you saw it? You see it in the churches that you've come from? Often sinning elders and sinning sheep are just ignored. Their sin is swept under the rug or it's just real easy to go to another church. It's not biblical and it is not best for the flock. And so, verse 21, Paul solemnly charges Timothy, solemnly charges us to take these instructions quite seriously. After all, we do what we do or not do in the presence of God who is, shows no favoritism, in the presence of His Son to whom all judgment has ultimately been granted and the elect angels, that is, those who had not fallen into sin and become demons. In other words, we do what we do or we do what we do don't do that we should do in the presence of all heaven. It's a serious and solemn charge. Disciplinary brothers and sisters for their benefit and for the glory of God. 
do it without bias or partiality. That's both sides of the spectrum. Bias is to have a negative thought toward them. Uh, partiality is to have a positive thought. Don't go into this prejudging their guilt or their innocence. Don't go prejudiced against. Don't show partiality for. It's important. Just because the sinning elder may be a close friend, just because he's been an elder, one of you, does not matter. If he continues in sin, we buke him in the presence of all so that everyone will be fearful of sinning. Brings us... She actually had a family leave the church when we had to do that church discipline. I don't like you doing that. Well, what does the Bible say? It brings us quickly to our last point, the selection, appointment, or ordination of elders. I'm going to go through this very quickly, verses 22 to 25. First glance, this appears to be a bit confusing, but this is why we must remember that Paul is continuing the subject of talking about elders. Then it will make sense. Don't lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for, their, their, for the sins of others. Lay hands on, what does that mean? Well, there came a, a practice in the early church when a sinner repented and he came back into the church, you laid hands on him and prayed for him, but that wasn't until the fourth century. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is this process of ordination that he has talked about earlier when he reminded Timothy to fan into flame the gift that he received by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, that is the other elders as Timothy was set aside to do the work. So here, likely, Paul is talking about don't hastily lay hands on men to set them aside as elders. Be very careful about how you do that. Would these men be the, the ones who had been disciplined and are coming back into the church? Hey, let's make them an elder again. Could be. It could be just men who are considered for the office. Don't lay hands on them too quickly. See, we remember the qualifications of an elder includes that he not be a new convert. You see, there's got to be a, a time of proving See, by appointing men hastily to serve as elders, we can, well, we can bring their sin into the office and share in the responsibility of that sin. Don't do that, Timothy. Keep yourself free. More literally, keep yourself pure from sin by, by not participating with their sin. And then all of a sudden, he, having told him to keep himself pure, he kind of takes a right turn and he starts talking about Timothy's tummy. Well, what, what, is, what is this? Verse 23, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Well, people look at that verse, they just rip it out of its context, say, well, Timothy was, you know, he was really a timid guy, and he's telling him something to do that's really difficult here, and so he's, you know, he carries his nerves in his tummy, so take a little wine, because it'll calm your, calm your tummy. Notice, by the way, just a little wine, don't medicate, all right? I, I, listen, I, I don't think that's what it means. I think, I think that Paul had somehow received news of Timothy um, only drinking water because he'd been swayed by these false elders and their teaching on asceticism. Don't eat certain foods. Don't drink certain drinks. Paul says, Timothy, while I'm on this topic, keep yourself pure. Don't be sucked in by a little false teaching. Like, drink some wine. It's good for your tummy. Okay, fine. That brings it back to the point of carefully selecting elders and ordaining or appointing them in verses 24 and 25. Very quickly, verse 24, he says, don't be hasty because sin is not always readily apparent. Verse 25, don't be hasty because good deeds are not all, always readily apparent, right? Verse 24, 
the, the, the sins of some men are quite evident. They, they go before them to judgment. I mean, it's obvious to everyone. You wouldn't name you know, John Smith because everybody you knows Johnny is a, is a drunk. You know, you're not going to name him to be an elder. His sin comes before him. Of course you wouldn't select him. But listen, there are others whose sins follow after. They're not clearly as evident. So don't lay hands on men too quickly. Make sure as much as possible that they meet the qualifications. And likewise, verse 25, some good deeds are, are quite evident. And you'll likely just to be drawn to them because it's real clear that they're the, they're the really good guys. That's fine. But listen, don't do this too quickly because there may be others whose good deeds are are not as evident, but they can't be concealed. They'll eventually be made known. Don't dismiss someone just because you don't see something right up front. This is the idea. Okay. Okay. So, so what does all of this mean for us as we close? First, I want to encourage you to honor your elders as they work hard to shepherd and to care for you. I, I want you to know um, that I have sat in hundreds, it may be thousands, I don't know, of elder meetings through the course of my time here, like with Paul Branch. And he is the most godly man that I know. And we have a group of elders who are good and godly men. And I challenge you to honor them. Second, we must recognize that moral and ethical purity is necessary to leadership. If sin is present, we must be willing to graciously confront and to pursue righteousness together. And finally, very practically, as we approach the process in the next couple of months, if you've been in the rhythm of our church, you know that we're getting ready to do this. As we approach the elder nomination and election process, we must take it most seriously. Most seriously. Let's nominate carefully those we believe the Holy Spirit is called and gifted, who demonstrate the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 to serve in this most important role of shepherding this church. Stand for prayer.